I always wondered about Pashas Kisovoi. It shows in one Pasha such diametric opposites. It's hard to understand then what's the unifying message of the Pasha. Pashas Kisovoi starts with the story of the Bikurim and the gratitude that Kleistral felt to Hashem and the joy that it engendered when everyone came together, each city has its own, to bring the Bikurim to declare to Hashem our thanks for setting us out of Mitzrayim, for bringing us there as Israel. The Korbanus that we bring, and climaxing with the Pasuk, The person should rejoice, should celebrate with all the good that Hashem gave him. That's the one part of the parasha. And then we continue, and it talks about the Mizbech that they built in her evil, and they had to bring Shlomim, and they had to feast, you should be happy in front of Hashem. And then in the same parasha, we have the most dire predictions, the most severe threats of punishment in the Techacha, and the punishments that Hashem threatens that He's going to bring, Kleishal don't keep the terror. How do we relate to both of these things in the same parasha? Maybe it's not so much a question, it's just a feeling of What's the message we're meant to be learning? At the end of the Pasha, Moshe's conclusion to the Kladis and the Brachos, Moshe tells the Jewish people, you saw all that HaKadosh Baruch Hu did for you in Mitzrayim, the miracles that he brought, the way he took us out of Mitzrayim, the way he treated us in the Midbar, how we were cared for in such a miraculous fashion. And then he says, Hashem didn't give you the heart to understand, nor the eyes to see, or the ears to hear until today. Now I want to understand what that means. What was it that they didn't understand? They were witnesses of the miracles that Hashem did in Mitzrayim. They experienced themselves the way Hashem treated them in the Midbar. What level of understanding were they missing? What didn't they see and didn't they hear when their man fell, when Anonakov surrounded them, when the Yamsov split? And if there was something missing, then what happened today? That now they are able to see and understand and to hear. What changed? So even though this isn't normally a podium I use to tell stories, and the story that I'm going to recount is quite well known in Israel, so some of the audience you might have heard it before, I apologize for that, but I think the message is so powerful that it's worth repeating even if it be one person who hasn't heard the story before. And with this story I'd like to answer the questions we've already raised. The story I saw recounted by an Israeli writer, his name is Kobi Levi, about a wealthy property investor, his name is Alfer. Alfer spends his time investing in the ground, building properties, developments, obviously making a big profit, and then going on to bigger things. And Alfer is very successful, successful financially, 
lacking for nothing. Over the course of the years, there have been occasions that Rav has had to come closer to Yiddishkeit to find out about religion, whether it's co-workers who've invited him to Shurim, whether it's distant family members who've become religious on their own. But Rav is always quick to decline any invitation to avoid any opportunity. And the story goes that at a certain point in his career, he's just sold a lot of his investments, he's made a lot of money, and he's looking for his next big project. And at the time, there's two options on the table. The one was to invest in what now is known as the Israeli Towers in Tel Aviv, an enormous office and shopping tower. And the other one was to invest in a also major development project in Eastern Europe. Another ways of two options, and he decides that the Eastern European option is more lucrative. So he throws all his available cash on hand into buying big amounts of property in Eastern Europe. Besides for that, he takes out enormous bank loans in order to pay for the building rights and just begin the construction. And he's convinced that given a few years, he's going to come out even wealthier than he was before. What happens is that there's a change of government in this Eastern European country, and the entire building project is put on hold. The government's permission is withdrawn, so the whole project is frozen. So on the one hand, the office capital is now all tied up in a frozen investment. There's no way to market it, to develop it. He also has no way to sell out and get back his money. But at the same time, the banks want repayments for their loans on a monthly basis. So Alpha starts to set up other investments to pay back his loans. Eventually he has to sell his house, he has to sell his fancy car. But it still gets, eventually gets to the stage where he has no more, so to speak, assets that he can sell. He's he has to pay back his uh, debts. So he decides he has no choice. He's going to have to take a private loan. No bank, obviously, will extend him credit at that stage. So he finds there's a private loan company which is willing to give him the amount of money he wants as a loan, obviously at an extremely high interest rate. But he feels he has no choice. So he makes up with the company that he's going to pick up the money from their office. They're located in the Israeli towers in Tel Aviv. Okay, Alpha travels to Tel Aviv. He goes to the office. He picks up 100,000 shekels in cash, which he needs to pay back his immediate debts. He signs all the forms, obligating himself to pay extremely high interest rates. And he leaves office building. On his way out, he thinks, you know, he once had the opportunity to invest in luxury towers. So he decides he's going to go around and have a look at the building. He takes the elevator to the top floor at the time. I think it's the 45th floor. Which hadn't yet been renovated. It had just been built. It was just the raw concrete, so to speak, structure. No, no talent had taken it yet, so it hadn't yet been developed. 
So once we look at the development, he walks around the various rooms, which were slated for offices. It's just basically concrete. But uh, nevertheless, he looks at the size, he looks at the space. And while he's wandering around this empty floor, he opens a certain door to go into a different part of the complex. And as the door slams shut behind him, he realizes that there's no handle from the inside. Which means he's now trapped in this area of the 45th floor, which is totally uninhabited. It's just an empty, so to speak, shell of a building. And he can't get himself out. For whatever reason, he doesn't have a cell phone on him. And he finds himself trapped. So he starts to bang at the door and scream for help. But it's a deserted area. No one can hear him. After trying as hard as he could to make somebody in the building aware that he's upstairs, no response, I've looked a different way out. He wanders around the area he's in. The only other option is finds an open window. The glass hasn't been put in yet. 45 floors above the above a busy street below. So Oprah leans out the window and he screams as loudly as he can to the street below. Maybe someone will hear him. He says, help, I'm stuck, I'm trapped. But from that height, he screams, he screams, no one listens. No one can look up. The hours pass. Oprah doesn't see any solution. Eventually, he thinks anything he can do to try and bring attention to himself, make people aware where he is. He takes the wad of bills that he's just borrowed from the loan agency, he pulls out a 200 shekel note, and he throws it out the window, hoping that as it wafts down to the ground, somebody will look up and realize that it'll seem stuck in the building. The note slowly comes down to the ground, lands on the feet of a lady who's crossing the street. Very nice. She sees 200 shekels on the floor. She picks it up, stuffs it in her pocket, and keeps walking. Didn't work. He tries again. Takes another 200 shekels out the water, pulls, throws it out the window, watching as it slowly comes down to the ground, hoping that somebody will look up and see the money and look up and see where the money's falling from. Once again, the money falls, lands on the sidewalk, Someone passes by, sees money, picks it up, and keeps walking. So, but the sky is nothing else to do, so he tries again and again. And inside, his heart is crying. This is the money that he had obligated himself to pay so much interest for, the money he desperately needed to pay back debts. But what option what does he have? And he throws note over note after note, hoping somebody's going to realize that money doesn't just fall from the skies. Somebody's going to look up and see him standing in the building. But that's not to be. The hours go past. And at this stage, she's already thrown out the window. 50,000 shekels. And not a single person looks up to see where the money's falling from. Life is getting desperate. It's getting dark. He doesn't want to spend the night stuck in this building. He looks for some other idea. He wanders around the area he's trapped in. He thinks of something else. 
as always in a building site, which is just unfinished concrete, there's always bits of concrete which kind of are around the floor. So he takes a handful of concrete pebbles, he goes back to the window and he throws the pebbles out the window. He falls to the ground, they clatter on the pavement. People jump, where are these stones falling from? Takes another handful, throws it as well. And then people look up, like, which idiot is throwing stones out the building? It's going to hurt people. They look up and they see right at the top of the building there's a man in the window throwing handfuls of stones. So they call the police. Police race up to the top floor, open the door, find over there's a under arrest. You're potentially harming the public. An officer says, I'm so happy to see you. I was trapped here. I was just trying to raise awareness that someone would find me. Thank you for letting me out of this jail. That sounds a bit of an unusual response. The police say, come with us to the station. We want to verify if your version is true or not. So the officer spends a few hours that night in the holding cell while the police check into his background, into his, so to speak, he has no criminal history. And eventually they call him over and they say, look, we believe your story, you're free to go home. Over at home, his wife asked him, what happened to you? Where were you? What happened today? So he tells her the whole harrowing story. How he'd borrowed the money, how he'd gone around to look at the building and got himself stuck on the top floor. How he'd gotten trapped and there was no way he could get out. How he started throwing money, note after note, hoping somebody would notice. And nobody did. So eventually he started throwing handfuls of stones. How he nearly got arrested and eventually how he got released. After hearing this whole story, so his wife thinks about it and says, tell me something. What are you going to do now? Obviously thinking that out of the 100,000 shekels he had borrowed, he only had 50,000 left, as well as the debt to pay the rest. But Rava took the question differently. He said, what am I going to do now? I thought about it. I'm going to start keeping Shabbos. Keeping Shabbos? That was completely off the, what she was thinking about. What are you talking about? I asked her, what are you going to do now? She said, I understood. And I thought about it, and I decided that I'm going to start keeping Shabbos. Keeping cautious, becoming more religious. And she said, what happened to you? So he said, I learned an important lesson today. He said, I learned that when I threw money, nobody looks up. When I threw stones, everyone looks up to see where they're coming from. He said, for years and years and years, when I was doing well and I was successful, I understand now Hashem was throwing me the money. And I never looked up. But now when things aren't going so well, now that I'm suffering, I'm in debt and I'm having a hard time, I see this is the stone. So at least now I have to look up and see where the st- uh, notice who's throwing the stone. And therefore, Arthur decides he's going to start giving witness. That's the point of the story. As a postscript, Kobe Levy writes, eventually the political climate in Eastern Europe changed again, and Arthur was able to 
capitalize on the, his investment to develop whatever property it was, and slowly, slowly, he started regaining his former wealth. But the message is so true. When Hashem throws money, people don't look up. When things are going well and everything's successful, so how many people look and see where's the success coming from? Why am I being given the success? That's not the way people think. They don't notice it. It's only when things go wrong. If only when there's a tragedy. If only when there's punishment. They ask some people, say, one second, why are we being punished? Why is Hashem doing this to us? Then they look up to see who threw the stone. And then I think Rabbi says, he said of the parasha. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to notice him. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to be aware of him. The first way is when HaKadosh Baruch Hu throws the money. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu makes people healthy and well and successful and have everything they want and everything they need. And that's meant to bring a person to look up and notice and say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I recognize you're the one sending me all of this. You're the one looking after me. You're the one giving me everything I need. That's the first part of the parasha. The ideal scenario, Look at all the goods, but look at it as something being sent from Hashem. Recognize it as something Hashem is giving you. When you bring the Bikurim, you say, Thank you, Kaddish Baruch, for all you've done for me. When you build the Mizbech, for all that is given you. That's the better way to go about recognizing Hashem. But when, if, as human nature is, when people don't recognize Hashem when He throws the money, then Hashem is going to have to take the second approach. Hashem is going to have to take the approach of throwing the stone. Because that will bring, will bring people to recognize Him. And that's the second part of the Pasha. If it's not going to if the if the taiva and the goodness and the kindness isn't going to bring us to recognize Hashem, then it's going to be the clothes. And it's going to be the punishments. And it's going to be the curses of the Torah. Because then the nature of people is, why is Hashem doing this test? Ah, now they recognize that Hashem is doing something. And therefore the eights of the Torah, and this is the two sides of Pasha's Kisavit. The eighth of the Torah is make the opportunity to recognize Hashem from the good. Because that way Hashem doesn't need to throw the stone. Hashem doesn't need to use punishment as the means to bring people to recognize Him. That's where the Pasha starts. That's where the Pasha continues. And now we get to the end of the Pasha. Moshe tells the Jewish people as the postscript to the Kladus, Klai Yisrael, you've seen all the Nisim Hashem's done in Mitzrayim. How he saved you from the midst miraculously. How he punished them. How he led you through the midbar. How he took care of everything. And Hashem hasn't given you a lay of dice until today. And we ask the question, what didn't they know? They were witnesses to all these things. And Rashi explains. Whereas Hashem didn't give you the lay of dice, the heart to know, Rashi says, Hashem hasn't given you the dice not to recognize the miracles 
But to recognize the miracles as a chesed of Hashem, so that we come closer to Him. That that's the opportunity that is given to us as an opportunity for us to recognize Him. Of course they knew what Hashem was doing. Of course they saw the miracles which happened. But it's only when a person has the lay of the dice, the ability to know that I'm meant to use this and, and recognize that HaKadosh Baruch is throwing me these brachas. Hashem is sending me this goodness because He wants me to recognize Him. And what happened today? Why today did they recognize it? Today when they heard the Kladis. Today when they heard the Kladis. And that wakes Kla Yisrael up. Like we see. Their faces turn green. Who could survive such Kladis? Moshe's conclusion to them is the Kladis are only there when people don't recognize Hashem from the Brachas. Kladis only come to wake people up to remind them there's Hashem when Bracha doesn't do the job. The Gemara says that we always read Pashas Kislava before Rosh Hashanah. That the Yonah's Kladis should finish. It's not just a matter of reading the Pasha. But because we've read the words of the Pasuk, that finishes the year of Kladis. I think it's much more than that. Pashas Kislava teaches us the way to finish the Kladis of the year. Pashas Kislava teaches us that the way to avoid Kladis is to recognize Hashem through the Bracha. Because that's the point Hashem wants, that we should recognize Him. And if we do this through the Bracha, then we don't need Kladis as a means to remind us. And then we can truly say, that the Kladis should finish. That we should be able to be zeichen next year to a year of a year where we are able to rejoice and enjoy all the good and recognize that is what Hashem has given us.